What does it mean to connect to your future at Lake Michigan College? They connect you to your future passion. Explore paths to careers that will excite and motivate you. Visit lakemichigancollege.edu to find out how to connect to your future. Good morning. My name is John Smetanka, and the name of our program is With Respect. This morning's guest on With Respect is John D. Cox. John is a professor at Hope College specializing in Shakespeare. We're going to be talking today with John about his background, his life, but also Shakespeare as a phenomenon in today's world. John Cox, With Respect. We'll be right back. Good morning, John. How are you? I'm well, thanks. I'm glad to be here. Good. Oh, boy. An English professor uh, talking about Shakespeare. I'm intimidated. I love Shakespeare, but I confess I haven't read or seen all of his plays, I'm, I'm sad to say. Uh, and some of those I have not been able to understand, the ones I did see. Uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. But but obviously, I mean, I've read your book, uh, one of your many books, uh, Seeming Knowledge, and it is a fascinating book. We'll talk about it a little bit later. It's about Shakespeare and religion and thought of, in the Shakespearean time. Well, John, what about yourself? What? How did you get involved? Where'd you come from? Where are you from originally? I grew up uh, mostly on the East Coast in the Philadelphia area, and I had a very normal childhood and upbringing. Um, I certainly didn't think at all that I would be a college teacher. Um, <laughs> what got me started in the Renaissance was reading The Agony and the Ecstasy, that um, um, fictionalized biography of Michelangelo. And from there I started reading more serious things. When I went to college, um, I got interested in Shakespeare and I discovered that I was good at it. I went on to graduate school and so it's been a fairly straightforward story from there. Well, how did you get on to The Agony of the Ecstasy? What was it? A, you picked it up in a library or something? I honestly can't remember. Uh, I, no one recommended it to me as far as I know. I, and I can't, it's a big book as you know, mm -hmm. uh, but I just loved it. And from there I wanted to read more about the background of Italian Renaissance history and uh, just went on from there. What, um, what what town in New Jersey were you from? It was Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, oh, I'm right. sorry. Uh, at, the, at the time, uh, it was a countrified area. I uh, lived on 30 acres, actually. Um, I've been back since, and it's all now suburban. But at that time, um, it, was, it was farm country. I did a lot of um, farm work as a kid when I was in high school. Did your parents uh, farm? Is that what it was? No, they did not. Um, actually, my parents are... Protestant missionaries, or were Protestant missionaries, they're deceased now, 
And uh, this was um, an unusual situation in that it was a home for missionaries' children in the United States whose parents were overseas. Ah, so uh, it was, all, in, in a way, like a boarding school, only the parents went away yeah, for your right. schooling. <laughs> that's, that's a good way of putting it. We went to the local high school, uh, and uh, aside from the fact that there were 15 of us in the family, it was a fairly normal family. Fifteen? Yeah. All yeah. right. Fifteen young people. How many yeah. boys and girls? I can't remember the balance. It was probably about even. All right. Yeah. Now, that was not all your brothers and sisters, though. Oh, no. <laughs> How many were in your family? In my family, we uh, are six, uh, and I am third of six. How much farm work did you do in those days? I did a lot. Uh, I, I mean, farming in the, uh, in the 60s is different from what it is now, but uh, I, I worked for a dairy farmer. I worked for a small farmer with a lot of variety in his farm. Um, sorting potatoes, baling hay, picking sweet corn, packing sweet corn. He was a truck farmer, um, caring for dairy cattle and everything that goes with a dairy farm, at least a small dairy farm. Mm -hmm. yeah. Milking? Absolutely. Good. I didn't do the milking, but I was certainly responsible for being on duty during the milking. The milking mm -hmm. was turned over to a guy who was better at it than I was. Takes machines, and you had to know how to use the machines. Yeah. So uh, high school, where was that? It was Council Rock High School near um, uh, Newtown, Pennsylvania, and um, it was just a very ordinary uh, high school. I understand now that the population has grown. It's now divided into two, so there's Council Rock North and South, but in my day, there was just one. What about sports or extracurriculars? What did you do? I didn't do much. I went out for football one year, broke my knee almost immediately, and didn't do that anymore. <laughs> uh, I've, I've always been a very good cyclist. I used to work as a janitor part-time on the weekend, and I would cycle about five or six miles to that uh, and back again. And I uh, continue to cycle still. Uh, so cycling is something I really like, but I haven't, I haven't been a great uh, team sports player. A couple of friends of mine and I, from uh, friends of mine from Grand Rapids who are great bicyclers, um, invited me to go on a, a bicycle trip with them. Good for and, you. Uh, well, not so yeah. good for me because <laughs> I said, well, that's great. You know, I, I have a bicycle and, um, I, you know, I live in Stevensville. Why don't you, you want to come on? Oh, we'll come down there. It'd be great. Uh, how far do you want to go? And he, they said, well, I thought about 100 miles, they said. 100 miles? Well, we negotiated it down to a reasonable amount. I, I this took is in one day? In one day, oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And the, the first leg was from Stevensville winding around till we got to New Buffalo. And then at New Buffalo, we stopped at a restaurant. My brother uh, uh, had driven down to meet us at the restaurant, and he bicycled back. So each of us, with all the wanderings we did through the countryside, got about 25 miles. Uh, and uh, both of us were dead. That's plenty for me. I, I cycle one way uh, nine miles. Of course, at the end of the day, nine miles back. That's plenty for me. I wouldn't be able to do a whole lot more than that. Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad that there's someone else like me. And you know, it's funny. I had a, uh, an uncle who was going to be, according to family legend, a great baseball pitcher. And uh, he went to uh, Drake University. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not even sure what it was called at the time, but it was Drake University when he went there, Drake College when he went there. At any rate... Um, his parents told him, whatever you do, don't do anything to hurt your arm. Because they prized it for, for be, pitching. Because they saved, that's right, he was a pitcher and he was going to go with the White Sox and this was all set. 
And lo and behold, he went out to play football and got into uh, a game and broke his arm. Mm, wouldn't you know? And that was it. Mm. That was the end of his uh, the end of his career. Yeah. So, um, my the end of my career came not because of that because <laughs> I wasn't that good <laughs> before it began. <laughs> before it began. Yeah. Same Anyhow, here. so um, all right after um, after high school, where'd you go? Did you go to college? I did. I went to Hope College, uh, and I. I was not was not destined to do that, but somebody recommended it, and I applied and got a scholarship, and so I went all the way out to the Midwest from the East Coast and uh, did that for four years. Sometimes hitchhiked back and forth. I didn't have a lot of money, and um, uh, that's a long hitchhike. But I've, I've, I have some amazing memories about hitchhiking, uh, even in the winter, uh, out to the Midwest. We can do that these days when you couldn't do that. Uh, many years ago, um, pardon me. Uh, you could, pardon me, you could do it those days, but not today. Hitchhiking, hitchhiking is not all that uh, no, I safe. I agree with you completely. No, I wouldn't do it now. I, well, I'm not sure how safe it was then either. But young people do crazy things. Yeah, I was telling somebody. I was down in Mississippi in Bay St. Louis back in the '60s, and there was a uh, base. Uh, it's right on the Gulf of Mexico, and uh, Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. And there was a uh, hurricane came through. And at our school, which was at the head of Bay St. Louis, um, so therefore there's about five miles of open water in mm -hmm. between us mm -hmm. and the ocean. And uh, holy mackerel, the idiots, the, my classmates and I would go out in the middle of the hurricane and just lay into the wind mm -hmm. to see if we could mm -hmm. do it, how mm -hmm. far we could, how, you know. I can imagine this. 90 mile an hour, 100 mile an hour wind. We were idiots. We were complete fools. But, you know, we were young. Underestimating we were young. the risk, absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah. Anyhow, so college at Hope, then what? I went to the University of Chicago for both my master's and my Ph.D. However, the year I earned my master's degree was 1967-68, and in 1968, the government uh, stopped deferments for the draft for graduate students. Mm -hmm. And uh, since I was uh, prime material for the draft, I knew I was going to have to do something. So I took a break and uh, I taught school in uh, Gallup, New Mexico. It was close enough to the reservation, the Navajo reservation, that I was pretty sure if I did that, I would be deferred and it worked. It was mm -hmm. very close. Uh, I actually had a draft notice in my hands, but I took it to the school board and the school board phoned up the draft board and negotiated a deferment for me. And um, uh, eventually I decided to join the reserves because I didn't imagine myself teaching seventh grade for three years, which is what I would have had to do. And I really mm -hmm. wanted to get back to graduate school. So I joined the Marine Corps Reserves and I did six months of active duty and for five and a half years I did monthly meetings. So I have a Marine Corps background, I have a farming background, I have a <laughs> junior high teaching background, uh, things that uh, have apparently very little to do with what I'm doing now, but um, they were good experiences in lots of ways. Well, you know, it's um, it's the zig and zag of people's lives that's so interesting. Here, here. And, um, you know, I, this my audience, um, uh, those few hearty souls who listen to this show, uh, know that I've, that my life is zigzagged. And, and I'm, one of the fascinating things with each of the guests that we've had on is how... Um, Contrary to the idea that all people have a plan that they live out, uh, most very successful people 
are just as confused as the rest of us. They kind of go from place to place, and and uh, um, and, and you don't end up where you you thought you were going to start. Well, that's certainly true for me. I, I was a, uh, a young person who was compelled to deviate from the course that I thought I wanted to follow, and um, fortunately found it again, and I've been very pleased with my profession, but it's um, it, it did require some zigs and zags, as you put it. Okay, but now Shakespeare was one of those zigs, <laughs> or a zag, and it came in where? Did it come in before you went to graduate school? Or yes, absolutely. Okay. I, uh, I discovered when I was in college that I liked Shakespeare. Uh, at that point, the Shakespeare course at Hope College was uh, a two-semester sequence, and I took both of them, and I did well, and I can tell that I really liked this. And uh, so uh, I determined to carry on um, with that kind of study when I went to graduate school. So you ended up um, teaching on any, did you teach Shakespeare on the, on the reservation? I did not. I was teaching remedial reading, reading to seventh graders okay. um, in, in Gallup, New Mexico. And uh, uh, that was a very um, good experience in lots of ways, but it was about as far from Shakespeare as it could get. You know, when I, ta I taught catechism to um, uh, about 60 or 70 uh, black children in, this, in the South back in the 60s. And That's a challenge. They're in first and second grade. And I, I tell you, it was... It was good for me for if for no other reason than the humility <laughs> that you are that is forced on you by you you try everything you can to get through to other people and sometimes either language or culture or time or time of the day or heat in the room or crowding all of those things have to be factored in to whether you're going to be successful it's the truth you know these young people that i was teaching in gallup are mostly navajo kids and their problem was not that they were slow learners but that they were second language learners mm -hmm. and at that point i'm sure this has changed but at that point the school district wasn't meeting that need i was given material that was designed for native speakers who were just slow learners i had kids uh, who started the uh, the year at a second grade reading level and by the middle of the year were up to grade level Mm -hmm. that's, those are smart kids, mm -hmm. and the reason they were losing it over the summer is that they were going back into a completely Navajo-speaking environment and were not maintaining their English. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I, as I say, I'm sure that the school system has long since met this need, but that was a severe challenge, mm -hmm. uh, having to invent materials that would meet the problem of uh, second language learners. Well, all right, then you became a, uh, a Leatherneck. And, uh, and that changed your life a little bit. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure that gave you a completely different perspective on life. It certainly did. <laughs> uh, and uh, I know that my brother, who is, uh, who is in the Army, it certainly changed his perspective on life. So then after you finished your commitment there, uh, where did you go? Where did you start teaching? I started teaching at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. It's hard to imagine a more idyllic setting. Uh, and uh, I really uh, enjoyed being there, but um, that turned out to be a temporary posting. I did three years at the University of Victoria in British Columbia, which is a Canadian university. And then I was given a Faculty fellow, Mellon Faculty Fellowship at Harvard. And uh, during that year, I uh, decided to take a job again in the United States, and the job at Hope College had opened up. So, Was it Shakespeare originally? 
Well, it was certainly, I had my PhD in English, I'd done my thesis in Shakespeare, and I w sure wanted to do that. It was not necessarily Shakespeare at first at Westmont College, but I did get to teach Shakespeare there in my second year, and I've been able to teach it pretty consistently ever since. We're going to take a break right now. We're talking to John Cox, professor of English literature at uh, Hope College in um, Holland, Michigan. And John's specialty, which we're going to be talking about now, is Shakespeare. We'll be right back. We're back now with John Cox, Shakespeare uh, expert, Shakespeare uh, student, um, and uh, also a professor at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. John, what is so unique about William Shakespeare that, that uh, in the past, what, a hundred years, um, he has been riding the surf? I mean, he's on the top. He's people pay attention. You talk about Shakespeare in co common culture. We still talk. Oh, that's really Shakespearean, or Shakespearean actors, or Shakespeare in love. Mm -hmm. Gwyneth Paltrow. All right. right. What, what's so interesting about Shakespeare? Well, I think it starts with the kind of uh, uh, writer he was. Uh, he, of course, wrote for the theater, and he never imagined that uh, his writing would have been taught in a university. It certainly was not in his day, and it didn't happen for a very long time. Uh, he was a man of the theater. He wrote for uh, a commercial audience. He wrote for a living. He had to, therefore, write plays that would appeal to people, and mm -hmm. he was very good at doing that. Uh, he was an active theater man. He not only wrote plays, he also performed in them, and he was a man of business. Uh, he was a shareholder in his company which meant that um, he invested a lot in it, but he got a significant return on his investment. Not everybody who was in his theater was a shareholder. Some were, were uh, just wage earners, but he was a, a major shareholder. And we know from other records that he was often involved in business transactions, sometimes legal transactions, sometimes purchases back in his uh, hometown of Stratford. But the primary thing, I think, is that he was just an extraordinarily gifted man of the theater. He was an entertainer. He knew how to give people what they wanted. One of his plays is called As You Like It. And I think that's a deliberate um, indication of um, the fact that he knew what people wanted and he knew how to give it to them without in any way compromising um, his own art. What, how was he re how was he received in his community at the time? When did he live? He lived in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. His life dates are 1564 to 1616. And that puts him uh, born in the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, and he died in the reign of King James uh, VI and I. So uh, he sp his lifespan spanned two reigns. 
and uh, everything indicates that he was well-liked. There's very little in the way of anecdotes about him, but I'll tell one which actually comes from his lifetime. There was a law student um, in London who liked to attend plays, and he had said he'd heard this story. He kept a diary, and this is from Shakespeare's lifetime. Shakespeare wrote a play called Richard III, and in that um, play, there's a very um, uh, important role. Uh, it's the title role. And it was played by Shakespeare's chief tragic actor called Richard Burbage. And uh, um, William Manningham, who writes this, um, this diary, says that a woman in the audience really became quite enamored of Richard Burbage in this role. And so she made a date with him. Uh, and Shakespeare overheard the making of the date, and Manningham says that um, he got there first. Uh, and <laughs> apparently, she wasn't very discriminating because, in Manningham's words, they were at their game when Burbage arrived. And uh, Manningham's version of the story is that Shakespeare uh, sent to, to be said uh, that William the First came before Richard the <laughs> Third. No, th that's the only story that comes from Shakespeare's own lifetime. Does it say that he was of loose morals? Maybe it does, but what it says is that, is that he attracted a, a fairly clever but, um, but um, interesting, good-natured story uh, to, to himself. Whether it really happened or not, we have no idea. So I think he was probably well-liked. Certainly his plays were extraordinarily well-liked uh, because he became a wealthy man as a consequence of writing them. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to bring up this, uh, I already talked about Shakespeare in Love, which is a great movie. I think it's a load of fun. I agree. And uh, it does a lot, it seems to me, to um, humanize, maybe inaccurate, historically inaccurate and all that, humanize two things. One is the writing of uh, Romeo and Juliet, yes, which is the basis of it, but also it humanizes the man completely out of, out of I hope, out of character. But um, he, he was uh, an exciting person. His times were exciting. Uh, there was a competition with Christopher Marlowe. Yes. And there was... Um, Burbage takes uh, takes a part in that movie. There is a, a character, uh, Richard Burbage, an actor, and they mm -hmm. do play around mm -hmm. uh, socially, as it were. Um, but it 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 it. Uh, one of the fascinating things is how that movie integrates political life and social life with the the dramatic life of the play and of the. The, the author and the uh, and the actors. Yes, and I think that that's something which is often missing in people who talk about uh, um, great thinkers or great uh, actors or great whatever is they don't talk about the relationship to the times. Mm -hmm. But he really was a um, in his plays was he not very conscious of many of the things that were boiling around him at the time. I do think so. I just want to make a quick comment about sure. um, about Shakespeare in Love. Um, I, I love that movie, too, and I recommend it to my students. One of the central features of that movie, as, as I'm sure you know, is that uh, Shakespeare has writer's block. Uh, it's a very <laughs> Freudian interpretation of Shakespeare, and uh, he overcomes his block by falling in love, um, which is a Freudian interpretation. 
every indication is that Shakespeare didn't have writer's block. This is just Tom Stoppard's invention. Somebody <laughs> made the comment that this has less to do with Shakespeare and love than it has to do with Tom Stoppard and love with Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, Shakespeare's fellow playwright and actor, um, Ben Johnson, was talking to a Scotsman, William uh, Drummond of Hawthornden, and made the comment that the actors often say, Johnson says, that Shakespeare never blotted a line. In other words, he never revised, he never crossed anything out. And then Johnson says, would he had blotted a thousand? <laughs> in other words, in Johnson's estimation, he should have revised more because Johnson didn't like the kind of plays Shakespeare wrote. But that's a very interesting comment that he never revised. This was the common notion about him. He, he must have written fast. He wrote 37 plays, either entirely alone or with sharing the work with somebody else, in about 20 years. And that's a fantastic output, especially when you consider the kind of plays they are. Mm -hmm. uh, things like Hamlet and Lear and Antony and Cleopatra, these amazing plays that are so rich and poetically nuanced and with amazing characters. So I, I don't think that the writer's block issue is, uh, I mean, Tom Stoppard had his own reasons for doing that in Shakespeare in Love, but you're absolutely right, John, to say that he, he seems very aware of his times. At the same time, he was awfully good at not committing himself. You really can't tell where he is politically. Um, he, he, he isn't taking strong stands one way or the other. It's not that he's wishy-washy. I think that uh, his history plays, for example, his English history plays, he wrote 10 of those. His English history plays are extraordinarily sensitive um, analyses, in my estimation, of how politics works. If you think of politics as the doings of powerful people, um, then I think that he's a, a very serious observer and reflector on what was going on around him, especially in a monarchy, which was the only thing he knew. He had no conception of democracy, whatever. Um, so I do think that he was a very uh, keen observer and uh, very good at absorbing what was around him and at turning it into amazing fictions for the stage. Well, you, you, during the time of Elizabeth I, um, Historically, yes. now, there was a great deal of turmoil. Um, uh, Spain was threatening uh, was England. It was a serious, a very serious, in fact, the largest invasion force ever put together for uh, an attack on the British Isles was the Spanish Armada in 1588. That's right. And um, so there was this constant worry and plotting mm -hmm. uh, because there was all kinds of spies floating around. Yes. Are we going to have an invasion? Yes. There was the the play out of the Refor the Reformation mm -hmm. uh, and Henry VIII's uh, creating of the Church of England. Yes. All of those floated around, and from my other reading, it seems to me that there was a lot of suspicion out there about bright people and people who write about uh, monarchies. Now, did he ever run into trouble himself? Uh, for his plays that, that, you know, that started talking that didn't portray monarchs in the best fashion. As far as, far as we know, he didn't run into trouble personally. Uh, there's an interesting case where um, there, in, late in Elizabeth's reign in 1601, she died in 1603, there was an attempted uh, coup against her by the Earl of Essex. 
And one of Essex's followers, the Earl of Southampton, um, was the patron of Shakespeare's company. And as far as we can tell, um, it was uh, Shakespeare's Richard II that was ordered to be played on the evening before Essex's attempted coup d'etat. And if you know Richard II, you know that it's about um, one king overthrowing another king. Mm -hmm. And the company was um, under profound suspicion for, for doing that. They had to revive the play to do it. It, it had long it had been written uh, much earlier. Um, and it seems to have been done as somebody else's orders. And they seem to have been exonerated because it was not their own initiative. That's the best documented case of um, of Shakespeare coming close to getting into trouble. But, of course, that wasn't necessarily Shakespeare himself. It was his company. Mm -hmm. And he almost certainly would not have initiated that or have had anything to do with it. But I want to go back to something you mentioned before, and that's the Spanish Armada and the Reformation, because they're very closely related. Uh, Elizabeth I, who began her reign in 1558, six years before Shakespeare was born, was a Protestant monarch. It took took people a while to figure out where her stand was. She was pretty good at, um, at um, waffling, I guess I would say. But eventually, uh, by 1570, she was excommunicated. And then in 1580... Excommunicated by... The Pope. By the Pope. So from, by the Roman Catholic by the Rome, Church. By the Roman Catholic Church, mm -hmm. but not by her own church. She was head That's of her right. own church in the, in, the, in the pattern of her father, Henry VIII, as you mentioned. And then in 1580, um, a subsequent pope uh, issued an absolution uh, in advance for anybody who would assassinate her. So, in other words, you could assassinate the queen and not have this on your soul. We call that a fatwa in, in, uh, in sort of very, Muslim terms. Very close parallel. That's right. Well, this obviously created a lot of paranoia in England around the queen. Um, and there was a lot of suspicion. Uh, and... Um, by modern standards, the Elizabethan government was anything but tolerant. Uh, it was extremely intolerant. But by 16th century standards, it was relatively tolerant. You could be a Catholic in England and not be prosecuted just because you were a Catholic. You couldn't proselytize, and you couldn't worship with, in the Catholic way with other Catholics. But no one would go after you if you just were a Catholic yourself. Um, that's the kind of toleration there was. If you resisted that policy, they went after you very harshly and um, very, very severely uh, in the manner of the time. And uh, so, yes, there was, a, there was a lot of suspicion, and it had a lot to do with the, the Protestant monarch and the fact that there was a state church, and it was a Protestant state church. And the, uh, the rule of the kingdom is that you had to attend church. You could be fined for not attending church. So you were basically compelled to attend the Protestant church. And uh, there, were, so there were a lot of politics surrounding religion, definitely. Mm -hmm. But religion, we're going to talk about this a little bit more in depth later on, but religion was not something which was um, um, uh, irrelevant to people in those days. But you're, I mean, you're saying, that, for example, that they had to actually attend upon payment of fines yes. for not attending. So the but so religion was a part of people's lives. Then. A huge part of people's lives, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, I I mean, it's a fact that if you were if you were uh, baptized, you were a Christian in the 16th century. That's what made you a Christian, and everybody was baptized. So everybody was a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't have any choice. You had no choice. Uh, this happened to you when you were an infant. And, uh, of course, what kind of Christian you were was another matter entirely. And people ask a lot what kind of Christian 
Shakespeare was um, without actually coming up with any very good answers. But, uh, well, we're going to take a break and come back to those issues and others about Shakespeare and about uh, yourself. Um, we're talking to John Cox, professor of Shakespearean studies at Hope College, and our guest will be right back. back now with John Cox, professor of, of English literature at Hope College and a specialist in Shakespeare. We were talking about the relationship of Shakespeare to his times. And this is a fellow from what you're describing who was uh, talking about some pretty deep things uh, that related to the kings and monarchies and, and the way people in those positions functioned. And like Elizabeth was functioning, or James I of, of, uh, of England was functioning. And um, I was curious as to whether or not people he would get in trouble. But you got talking about religion. Somehow, I think we, in a, in a relatively diverse and tolerant society, where what religion you become uh, familiar with and, and, and participate in, or no religion, is basically a matter of taste, a matter of uh, commitment, a matter of individual choice. But in those days, it was, it was not simply a matter of choice. And we've already talked about the fines and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But it was something more. That is, it was a part of the warp and woof of that society. It was, and uh, I think that um, this comes clear in, in, in one way in Shakespeare's plays um, through the sheer number of biblical references that he makes. Um, I've done a comparison of, between his biblical references and the references of his near contemporary Montaigne, who was French and of course Catholic. And uh, that may be part of the difference. So I think it has a lot to do with personal taste as well. But Shakespeare was extraordinarily familiar with the Bible. He alludes to the Bible all the time. Uh, I think I made a count of roughly 3,500 references, and this is from other people's scholarly work, not mine, but just, just uh, uh, counting up their the number of references that they found. And um, he will often choose a biblical reference over a classical reference that would say the same thing, but um, be a reference, say, from Horace or from some from a, a Roman poet, he'll, he'll use the biblical reference instead. I don't know what that says about him. It clearly says that he knew the Bible very, very well. Um, and, of course, he's in a Protestant country. He's going to church regularly. Uh, he's a voracious reader. We know that he read an awful lot. 
Uh, he never staged a particular biblical story. He didn't even stage any stories that are allegories of biblical stories. There are some things that are sort of a little bit prodigal son stories, but that was very, very common. And you can't say, well, this is a particular biblical story that he's, that he's telling. But I do think that there's a, this is my reading of his plays, that there's a general sense of human destiny as um, falling somewhere in a significant way between creation and last judgment. Um, there are numerous references in the plays that suggest that he's deliberately placing humankind in the destiny of, um, of, of, of a Christian view like that and that he really um, pays careful attention to the kinds of choices people make, which are ultimately moral choices. And so in, in, in many respects, as I read Shakespeare, um, there's a, a deeply Christian sense of the human situation. In, in your book, um, Seeming Knowledge, you talk about something which I never understood until I read that and, and did some uh, checking on my own. Um, I've always heard about Shakespeare having written comedies yes. and tragedies and historical plays. But yes. those are titles which were, those are categories that were added on later than, uh, than, I'm not sure that he said, oh, by the way, I'm going to write a comedy. Good point. All right. But, you know, when I thought, of, when I think of comedy, it's like going to see uh, someone will make me laugh a lot. Yes. And when I go to a tragedy, I think, well, I, I'm going to get a heavy dose of sadness here. Yes. And of course, in history, that's fairly, uh, fairly significantly. Um, well, I'm going to learn about what happened, mm -hmm. know, sort of sequentially, mm -hmm. in in in, uh, in in history. Now, but that's not how those terms were used back in Shakespeare's time, were they? Well, the two the two uh, dramatic genres that he inherited were comedy and tragedy from the ancient world, and those were well-established terms. And of course, he was an inheritor of um, of, of the rediscovered classics, the so-called Renaissance humanist movement. And uh, although he never went to university, uh, he certainly was familiar with the current critical thinking, that is literary critical thinking of his day. So he was very aware of comedy and tragedy. And I think that uh, he, although I don't think he ever necessarily sat down to say, I'm going to write a comedy, I'm going to write a tragedy, uh, he has a very strong sense of form, of dramatic form, and um, the first collected publication of his plays, in fact, does divide them, this was after his death, but not very long after his death, into those three kinds, comedies, histories, and tragedies. He did not, however, invent any dramatic form called history. And as far as we can tell, there's some debate about this, but I think that um, it's pretty well settled that Shakespeare invented that form. He certainly is the best at it. There's just no question. Mm -hmm. Nobody wrote English history plays as well as Shakespeare did. And when I say wrote them well, what I mean is with such thoughtfulness and, again, with such powerful audience appeal. Some of them are more appealing than others, but most people who know a history play know the first part of Henry IV, the reign of Henry IV, which includes the great comic character Falstaff. Mm -hmm. uh, this is simply one of the greatest plays ever written, and it happens to be about English history, and uh, it's an extraordinarily thoughtful analysis, I think, of the way uh, politics works in a monarchy. And um, it, it's, it's uh, a play that is shaped by that uh, concern and those considerations.
But the, the term tragedy and the, ter- the, the word tragedy and the word comedy have a specific sort of meaning. And I'm going to bounce this off of you yeah. um, and see if I'm correct. Where comedy was review- was, was uh, defined as it has a happy ending. Yes. And tragedy, it has a sad ending, or at least has a troubled ending. Aristotle was the was the first to make the observation that um, that, that that comedy tends to conclude with um, to, to to the satisfaction of those we care about, and tragedy is just the reverse. Um, their their uh, their their conclusion is a is an unhappy one. So yeah, that's a fair characterization. For the most part. The comedies do tend to have moments that make us laugh, mm-hmm. uh, and we certainly feel good about the ending in, in a Shakespearean comedy. But um, if I think of a play like Hamlet, there are a lot of laugh lines because Hamlet himself is very, very clever, and he often says very barbed and witty things, and it's impossible not to laugh because he he means us to laugh at what he's saying. Uh, so um, there are certainly moments of comedy of what we would call laughter or comedy in that sense in Shakespearean tragedy. And as I said, uh, definitely also in the history plays, especially in 1 Henry IV. One of the things that the, the, the Shakespearean plays that I have seen, whether they're in movies or on, uh, on the stage, um, I, I'm troubled by the first, the fact that I, when I, uh, the, most of the great performances are done with British accents. And sometimes a British accent can be more difficult to understand than uh, some accent of the United States that you're not familiar with, or some uh, German person speaking English. It's 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 a it's a specific um, way of um, inflection of dropping the ends of the last syllables of words and so on. And but we're so used to that that when we see an American version of the same play. I take, for example, um, uh, Hamlet, um, done by the uh, cowboy actor, what is his name, the, uh, not cowboy, the uh, Australian actor. Um, uh, I know you're thinking, I can't think of it at the moment either. Uh, the movie, they made a movie. a movie of it, yes, yeah. I, I, and there was, a, it flowed, but it's, it's completely different than when you hear um, Sir John Gielgud, or some, or some of the great Shakespearean actors from the, uh, and see them in in, in uh, London. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it actually, the the what's called received pronunciation, or that sort of upper class British accent, uh, what's sometimes called the Queen's English. Uh, is an invented uh, accent. England has, a, is a, has many regional accents. Uh, Irish, of course, we all know sounds different from British English, but uh, you get a West Country accent, you get inner London, you get Scots, a number of varieties of, of, uh, of regional accents in England. And um, people who've studied these things uh, know perfectly well that the way in which English tended to be pronounced in London in Shakespeare's day was not what is now received pronunciation. And there have it's been not some... the Queen, it's not Elizabeth the seconds in English. Not at all. <laughs> there have been some experiments. Uh, there was one at the at the New Globe, which is that recreated um, theater of Shakespeare's on the south bank of the Thames in London, where they they the actors learned what the, what we think is Shakespearean pronunciation and performed the play that way. I didn't see it, but a lot of people who did thought it was an extremely interesting idea and quickly got used to it, and uh, and were really intrigued by it. 
So um, the, the notion that we're used to these great accents, Olivier or Gilgut or whatever, they're just awfully good actors, but their accents are, are incidental to the performance. And so, the, so, but the point here uh, is when I watch a Shakespearean play, one or even read it. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm struck by how I want to I want to use this word carefully. How dense, i.e., yes, very packed with mm -hmm. meaning and mm -hmm. packed with mm -hmm. twisted um, syntaxes that that are mean, are well done. Yes, but you really have to use it. You know, with, with feeble little twenty of a first century brain I have. Uh, has to say, wait a minute, slow down. I want to go back and feel that line. Do that mm -hmm. line again. Would mm -hmm. you please do the line again? Well, to my mind, it seems to me much less bothersome what the accent is than whether or not the actor can get the syntax across the poetic line. Every line in Shakespeare typically has ten syllables in a particular rhythmic pattern, which we call iambic. Um, and uh, it's very easy for actors first coming to this not to understand how to make sense of the sentences with those poetic lines. They tend to pay more attention to the poetic lines than they do to the sentences. A, a trained actor will uh, recite the verse or say the verse as if it's coming to him spontaneously as his natural speech for the first time. That, to my mind, uh, is what makes um, a compelling performance, especially if it's accompanied by gestures and facial expressions that um, make it equally compelling. Um, so I'm much less bothered by accent than I am by, at least per, for me personally, than I am by the ability to make those lines live, to make them sound like real conversation. Too often it seems to me the, the plays of Shakespeare are now appreciated by college professors, by people who have made a study of it, uh, by people who uh, go to a lot of plays, uh, therefore are, are into that format or do a lot of reading, but that's not the, the, the bulk of the audience in America. Um, but it, you're telling me that, that uh, uh, on the contrary, in Shakespearean going live, Shakespearean Times Live, yes. that he was very popular, a very popular uh, playwright. He was indeed. Uh, he played uh, for, the plays were performed for a London audience, and as far as we can tell, there was quite a cross-section. Um, one of the reasons that we know this is that, is that uh, a variety of charges were, were in place. That is, you could pay a minimum fee and stand to watch mm -hmm. the play. You could pay a little more and sit in the galleries, and, and you could pay the, the highest price and actually sit on stage, believe it or not, in a mm. Shakespearean theater. Uh, and the importance of that, of course, is that you were um, not only uh, seeing, but you're also being seen. <laughs> so, so the wealthiest and most powerful people uh, paid that very high price to be seen to be watching the play mm -hmm. by other people. Um, but that, that cross-section of prices indicates that there was almost certainly a cross-section of the populace watching to those, uh, from, from those very expensive seats on stage to the relatively cheap uh, standing places. And um, that's an important indication of, of, of uh, the variety of people who were going to see them. And most of them were relatively, most places were relatively inexpensive. So this is, these plays are appealing to a wide audience. You know, 
we, th we think of a play like Hamlet as being such a profound play, and I agree that it is, but almost certainly the word of the day was you got to go see this play where this, this amazing ghost and all these people get killed in the end, and they do. I mean, this really does happen. And so, as, as with a modern movie, people like action, they like uh, horror, they like uh, lots of things of that sort, and you can find a lot of those things in a Shakespearean play. He, I don't think he's just pandering. I don't think he's throwing them away. I think he, he does very serious things with them, but they're there, and it's what makes the plays appealing. We're going to take another break right now. We're talking to John Cox, professor of Shakespearean studies at, uh, at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. We'll be right back. now back with John Cox, professor of uh, Shakespearean Studies, Hope College, and author of a number of books. I suggest that to our listeners that you go to, uh, uh, you Google, go to your computer, go to the net and Google John Cox, and you'll see a wide range of writings that John is responsible for. Um, and uh, I find it very interesting. I've read now three of his pieces, and I'm in the middle of uh, seeming knowledge, which I'm hope we have a chance to uh, to talk a little bit more about. But I want to follow up on going back to um, uh, two images. One is Shakespeare in Love. Mm. And when they showed the how the play was played in the Globe Theater, presumably, um, they did just exactly what you described. They had the, the common area mm -hmm. with, with virtually all different kinds of folks in there. Uh, from People the standing. poorest and prostitutes and priests and everything. But then, they, of course, they had the more um, uh, elaborate places to sit where the queen in the galleries, did, yes, uh, yes. Up in the, uh, in the galleries. We know for a fact, incidentally, that Queen Elizabeth never went to the public theater. So oh, that, that's just a, a little bit of a fiction. What a pity. <laughs> it was such good theater, though. <laughs> <laughs> she saw Shakespearean plays, but they came to her. She didn't go to them. But, you know, it's something very interesting you mentioned. I didn't didn't know anything about the uh, use of as is it as you like it yes as the as the no I'm sorry uh, the the play Richard II as sort of the the triggering the bells of uh, of the massacre to take place yes um, but there's a parallel in Hamlet yes there which is. is the use of a play which yes. he made up or uh, pardon me he asked a few lines to be added to to trip the conscience of the king. Yes, uh, I agree with you, John. It's a very interesting parallel. Uh, Hamlet came first, so he was not remembering that very, very dicey incident with his own company, and I don't think he would have done it in the, in the reverse order. But it is an interesting, you, you want to say, why would a person who's going to stage a coup d'etat stage a play the evening before that threatens the person he's going to overthrow? Wouldn't he want to keep everything secret? And um, I don't think it had anything to do with trying to catch Elizabeth's conscience. It had a lot to do with intimidation. I think it really, he was trying uh -huh. to intimidate her. Mm -hmm. And um, 
if if you're not looking at things from Hamlet's point of view in Hamlet, mm-hmm. and you hear him say, <clears throat> "This is one Lucianus nephew to the king," when he's describing what's going on in the in the play within the play, um, and Lucianus is the assassin, and the uncle is the victim, then what are you thinking? You're thinking, this is Hamlet intimidating Claudius. That's what Mm -hmm. you're thinking. Mm -hmm. You're not thinking what Hamlet's thinking. And I think that's an intriguing part of that play. That's how I see it anyway. No one knows what Hamlet knows or what Hamlet thinks he knows. He doesn't really know it either. The ghost has told him, but he can't know it for sure, which is a, a, a key problem in that play as far as I'm concerned, knowing for sure uh, whether Claudius is guilty or not. We know he's guilty because we hear him acknowledging it in a prayer, and presumably people are bearing their souls when they're praying to God. So we believe him when he says that this is the, the primal eldest curse and so on, a brother's murder. Um, but Hamlet does not hear that prayer. So Hamlet doesn't have knowledge that we have. And to me, that's a very interesting example of something that Shakespeare does for his audience time and again. He lets us have knowledge of things that are going on that he withholds from his characters. In only one play does he not do this out of 37, that's The Winter's Tale, where he deliberately conceals from us very important plot information until very late in the play when he suddenly reveals it. And he does it with such um, artistry that um, it's not offensive. It has just the opposite effect. But uh, he's very he's very kind, he's benign to his audience, so to speak, uh, in, in including them and letting them in on the secret, if you will. You know, that's interesting because one of the... Um, when we have detective movies or detective novels um, or uh, mysteries where we're... Um, they they um, they grab us and they take us you know sitting on the beach we can we can uh, lose ourselves, but one of the problems, we say is oh I knew who did the killing in the middle of the book or mm-hmm. in the third page mm-hmm. I knew who did it mm-hmm. and that's considered a negative, mm-hmm. uh, because we're so trained today to have it all be sort of a, a Agatha Christie at the end of the story. It all comes clear. Mm-hmm. And we, then we judge uh, our uh, uh, the effectiveness of it or the, the, the greatness of the book or the story is whether it's the ending is prepared for or whether it comes out of the blue, deus ex machina sort of yes, thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. But you're telling me that, that that's not how Shakespeare did his plays. Well, I wouldn't say that we always know exactly what's going to happen. That's not what I mean. What I mean is he doesn't conceal essential information from us in such a way that um, uh, we're suddenly completely stunned mm. um, by what happens in the end. In The Winter's Tale, what, 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 the one place where he does do this is we think a character is dead. We abs- people say she's dead, and she disappears from the action entirely. And then suddenly, in the very last few moments of the play, uh, it turns out she's not, and she actually appears on stage in a very stunning way. Um, that's the kind of thing I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't do that. And Hamlet is a really good example. We know darn well that Claudius is guilty, and uh, yet Hamlet doesn't have our knowledge. And I think that's a key fact about Hamlet, that he does not know things that we do. One of the th- I'm going to ask you to do something very difficult for uh, for anyone, and especially an author, and that is I want you to compress the thesis of uh, your book Seeming Knowledge mm-hmm. 
Um, what brought you to, what is the, the essence of the book and what brought you to, uh, to write it? There is a prevailing um, assumption, I think, um, in uh, the conversation about Shakespeare, the scholarly conversation about Shakespeare, that he was a secular playwright and indeed quite a skeptical thinker. And uh, in my view, um, uh, there is a lot of doubt about the human situation, but that doubt consists uh, of a doubt about human nature rather than um, the human situation more broadly conceived. So what I was trying to do was to suggest, as the, as the title suggests, seeming knowledge, um, Shakespeare and skeptical faith, that, that um, he's um, fundamentally a, um, uh, he gives us plays that, that reinforce a faithful sense of the human situation, but with profound suspicion of human nature. Uh, that's how I see this kind of balance that, uh, that appears in the place. Well, I was, um, when I was reading it, all I could think of was from my old philosophy days. And as, as you write the book, it's, uh, um, I, I studied at one point uh, Aquinas's Summa Theologica, uh, in which uh, he writes in very uh, fascinating fashion, a much a huge, long uh, uh, books. Indeed. Um, about, um, he analyzes uh, different parts of life and relationship to God and heaven and all this sort of thing. But the the method of him, of his proceeding, is to incorporate, to start off with a thesis, and then to look at all different sides and yes. different people presenting different yes. views, mm -hmm. and then incorporates all of them into his vision. It has Arist He quotes... Uh, uh, Aristotle, who he loved, yes, um, uh, as almost in in every argument, yes, uh, and then he comes up with his conclusions. What I was thinking about in your book is there is a marshalling of everybody's varying arguments uh, and and historical insights uh, and observations into your final conclusion. And it's, I thought that was extremely interesting. Well, that's extremely flattering and, and humbling to be compared to Thomas Aquinas. Oh, it's all right. We do this for all of our guests. <laughs> <laughs> Whom I admire enormously for his, his great intellectual skill. Um, uh, Thomas, as you say, for every single question he considers, uh, also considers the opposition to the point that he's making and can even cite authorities for the point that he's making, and um, and has read the Jewish authorities, and he's read the Islamic authorities of his day, uh, an extraordinarily wide-read um, teacher. And, um, you know, all one can do in, in writing a book is take as much into consideration as you can. I certainly have not considered everything, but I tried to be as fair as I could in considering the opposite point of view and not simply um, uh, hit people over the head with my own point of view, but try to, to, uh, to weigh um, varying points of view and coming to a conclusion. I appreciate you noticing that. Now, the last thing before we run out of time, we're going to have to do this very quickly. I'm, I'm going to cheat. Your daughter told me that you sh sing Shakespearean songs. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to end this with, is there a Shakespearean song that you can sing for us? You know, I don't have a Shakespearean song in mind, but there's a, there's a song which is exactly contemporary um, with uh, one of the plays that I, I will try to sing. Sweet Kate of late ran away and left me plaining. 
Abide, I cried, or I die with thy disdaining. Tee, quoth she, never did I see any man to die of loving. The point being, people don't die for love. They just say they're going to die for love. <laughs> <laughs> it's a point that comes up and as you like it. Uh-huh. John, the... the uh... The final thing I would like to ask you, is there any playwright today or since Shakespeare that you find as intriguing or as powerful um, an influence uh, in in literature in their own country or ours or whatever Mm -hmm. that you'd find Shakespeare? Well, there's some awfully good movies, um, uh, and uh, I think that's the that's the the the, the current counterpart is is a really good movie, and uh, there are lots of those around. Uh, I'm partial to the Cohn Brothers um, as, as as filmmakers. <laughs> David Mamet. Uh, I mean, th- these are these are more or less predictable, I guess, for somebody who's a literary uh, critic uh, to be interested in. David Mamet, of course, is wonderful with words. But they also tell good stories, and they tell them well, and they're entertaining, and yet there's a, they leave you with a lot to think about. Most movies don't. But I have to say that probably in Shakespeare's day, most plays didn't either. I mean, uh-huh. most of them have deservedly died. He just happened to be really, really good at it, and his have survived, thank goodness. Well, our time is unfortunately up, and I have to uh, bring this to a conclusion. Um, what I hadn't mentioned before, but just alluded to, is that John Cox is the father of one of our first interviewees, uh, Annalisa Cox, who wrote a book on covert township and African American and, and uh, white relationships in that county, in that township. And um, um, we, I found her to be extremely interesting as an interviewee, uh, and now as a friend. Um, we have uh, stayed uh, friendly over the uh, the two years since I first did that interview. I hope that that uh, you and I and and all of our audience will find uh, in you that openness to friendship because you did it. You do a great job and you produced a great daughter. Well, thank you. I'm very fond of her too, and I'm glad for this invitation and I've enjoyed the conversation. Good. The name of our program is with respect. We are on every Sunday morning at eleven o'clock and every Thursday morning at 10. Until next week, please join us again with respect.